right, we got that. So we got to start because I talked my way out of the break. So if you're still giving your offering or grabbing some uh, coffee or whatnot, just make your way in as soon as possible. But the rest of us, we're going to start. Anybody ever heard of the word paradigm? You ever heard that word before? So let's say this. If I do not, come on, we can do better. If I do not change the way that I think and change the way that I see, nothing else is going to change. That's right. The Bible says as a man or a woman thinks in their heart, as they believe and perceive from their heart, so they are. We all see life through paradigms and we all see life through lenses. So what is a paradigm? A paradigm is a pattern or a model by which we operate, a pattern or a model by which we see the world and by which we see others. That's a paradigm. Your paradigm affects everything. How you see and perceive oftentimes and people get locked into paradigms and they no longer can see and they no longer can see. It's almost going through life with blinders on. Oftentimes people have false perceptions and false paradigms as it relates to the Lord. They have false paradigms and false perceptions as it relates to themselves. One of the other ways of understanding a paradigm is by understanding it in the context of a lens. What is a lens? Anybody that has glasses, you understand what a lens is. We see through lenses. Your eye has a lens. But if you have glasses, you understand the need for correct prescriptions. <laughs> the right prescription can enhance your vision. The wrong prescription can restrict or distort your vision. There's a, I don't know if you all saw it, there's a video on YouTube of a little baby that has, um, uh, that has, uh, can't see very well. This little baby. And so they diagnosed the baby that couldn't see very well. And so they put glasses on the baby. I wanted to show it, but we couldn't get it in. Uh, I went, they, they put glasses on the baby. And so when they put the glasses on the baby, for the first time, the baby could see its mom and dad. And so she just reacts like, like a whole new world just opened up to her because she had, was given the correct lenses. She wasn't seeing the world correctly, the little baby. And so when they put the lenses on her, she saw it. And so in 2017, it's important that we change our lenses and that we grow in our perceptions and our understanding. So what happens is, is when we receive a paradigm shift, our lenses, what happens when we, our paradigm shifts or our lenses are changed, everything else changes. If you don't change the way that you see, nothing else will change. If you're locked in a vision and a perception of God, or you see the Lord simply as a taskmaster, or you see him as indifferent, that he doesn't care, your relationship with him will never change. If you see yourself in the context and the understanding and the light of what others have said about you, or even false perceptions that you have about yourself, nothing else will change. We have to see and know as he sees, and we have to see and know as, he, as, as ourselves, not just him. We have to see him as he is, and we have to see ourselves as he sees us. And so even if you do not see yourself as the way that Jesus sees you, Jesus is always right. I just want you to understand that. He's always right. He says more than a conqueror. You don't see yourself that way. I don't see myself as more than a conqueror. He says you're an overcomer. You don't see yourself that way. What happens is oftentimes it would be called intellectual idolatry. We think we're right. 
And we worship the way that we think and we worship the way that we perceive at the expense of what God says and what God wants to show us. And so we worship the idols of the mind. That's one of the biggest places of idolatry that we have in our lives is, is, uh, is, is the way that we think. The Bible actually says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One way of putting it is be transformed by the way that you think, be transformed by the way that you perceive, be transformed by the way that you see. So transformation requires a paradigm shift. Transformation requires that you see things differently, that you see yourself differently, that you see the world differently, that you see him differently, the Lord differently. So the way that we see the Lord, the way that we see ourselves, and the way that we see our future determines our choices and determines the way that we live. So when we're living out of false perceptions, our choices are going to be off. When we're living out of false perceptions, the manner in which we go about our lives is not going to be correct. So I'm going to give you three things, and we're going to talk about a couple of examples from the Bible where the, where the lens has changed, so that you can identify with that. Jesus wants you to experience your faith. I don't know if you're aware of that. Say this with me. Christianity, come on, Christianity is meant to be experienced. Now, ready for this one? First service couldn't get this one out, but I know I have confidence in second service. You guys have had coffee. You guys have been up for a little while longer. So you're going, to, you're going to say this really well. Say, Jesus, Jesus is calling me into a lifestyle. That's right. Christianity isn't something that's observed. Christianity isn't something that's attended. Christianity is a way of living. We follow the way. We follow the one. We become. We walk after him. It's a lifestyle. It's a supernatural lifestyle. It affects everything about you. Jesus wants you to experience what he has given. Jesus wants you to experience what he has brought. And he wants you to do so at a high level. So what needs to happen if, that's good? if we are going to be experience God in that way? What needs to happen? Number one, we have to understand who and what love is. Love is a person. And love is just not a person. Love is also a what. It is something. We have to understand majesty and how, how that relates to us. And the world around us, we have to understand identity and purpose. And that's a huge one. All three of these are key pieces in, do, in, under, in experiencing Jesus and knowing him at a higher level. And that's what he wants. He, it's what he wants. Say this with me. Jesus, it's reinforcing something. Jesus loves me too much to leave me the same. He is always, now, and forever working in my life to take me to the next level. He's always working on your upgrade. Always. He's always working to bring you into inheritance, and he's always working on elevating your life. Next slide. That's what he's doing. So who and what love is? God is love. First John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has not been born of whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is talking about a specific kind of love. Love can be experienced by human by humans, but only in certain degrees. The type of love that God is speaking of here only comes from the divine heart of God. So we have four types of love, and I'm gonna I can't name one because it's slipping my mind, but I'll give you what it means. We have a love that's called phileo, which is the, the Greek word is friendship. And what that looks like is you do for me, I do for you. We're friends. It's an even exchange. We have a Greek word called eros. Eros is a love that is experienced intimately between a man and a woman in marriage. That's where we get the word erotic from. There's another word that means affinity. In other words, like, I like ice cream. 
I like the color red. I love the color red. It means an affinity. That's what it means. And then there's the higher love, which is agapeo. Agapeo is a love that does not seek its own. It is a love that sacrifices for the benefit of another. That's the type of love that God is talking about. That love only flows from the heart of God. That's the love that we experience when we're in his presence. That's the love that we experience when we're in the spirit. You just want to give your life away when you're in the spirit. Then when you're not in the spirit, you're like, what did I do? What did I say? What, 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 what commitment did I just make? Because you were in the spirit. And the Bible tells us that that kind of love only comes from the Father. It's a love that is willing to forgive, right? We go, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Now, when you have the love of God flowing in you, you can forgive and forget. That's when you're in the Spirit, because that's where the love of God flows from. So what we have to understand, if we're going to change and we're going to become, we have to understand that God loves us. He loves you. On your worst day, He loves you. He's for you, even when you're against yourself. Something God's taught me this year, he'd give me another saying and he showed me, you know, and, and he just taught me this. He said, he wants you guys to understand because I always ask him, what is it that you want to say? I even asked him this morning when I was coming and he just emphasized love again. So I'm like, okay, it's an endless message of love, you know, because it's his nature. And what's something he taught me to teach this year is that you didn't make him love you. There is nothing that you have done that has caused him to love you. Bible says he loves you while you were yet sinners. Now that you're in Christ, how much more does he love you? If he was working for your good, this is the kind of love he's talking about. If Jesus was working to benefit you while you were a sinner, how much more is he working to benefit you now that you're in Christ? Jeremiah says he loves you with a from afar with an everlasting love. He draws you with cords of love. That's what he does. He works on your behalf. He loves you. So you have to understand transformation in a lens shift has to happen to know that God is for me, that God loves me, that he is good and he is always working for my good. When you understand that, you can position yourself and begin to walk in his love more. As long as you think that God's a taskmaster, he's going to whack you on the head every time you do something wrong, or he's going to kick you to the curb and he's going to reject you because you can't keep it all together. You're never going to walk correctly. You're never going to relate to the Lord correctly. That's why grace is so amazing. Religion can't stand grace because it doesn't require anything but submission. It doesn't require anything but receptiveness. That's all grace requires. God's like, if you'll just receive my grace, my grace will empower you and you'll be able to do the rest. That's what it is all about. Grace is the empowerment of God. That's really what it is. It's the divine enabling and so we position ourselves, God's grace comes upon us, and we can love, and we can serve, and we can do, and we can be. Religion can't stand that because it's not a list of rules. Give me a checklist so that I can feel good about myself. Well, get in Christ, and you'll feel really wonderful about yourself. You'll love you, and you'll love everybody else. And you'll stop being judgmental, and you'll stop being finger-pointing, and you'll stop striking against people who aren't as good as you. What religion does is religion always degrades itself to personal preferences. Always. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. Religion, regardless of whatever religion does, it always finds itself in personal preferences. Well, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those that do. And so one person would be over here going, well, I don't do that, but I don't go to R-rated movies. And you do. 
Yeah, but I don't drink, smoke, or chew or hang out with those that do. I saw you hanging out with a bunch of people who were smoking cigarettes. I saw you at a wedding that had wine on the table. You see where I'm going? My wife and I lived in Germany for a while. And this is a funny story. This is a story about culture. So we were over there in Germany. And, you know, we're Americans, right? We're Americans. We like coffee, okay, or tea or whatever it may be. I mean, we got Starbucks, like, we got Starbucks on the cross the street from each other, right? We could go to you could go some places in America, and there's a coffee shop on all four corners. I mean, it's like wherever you go at the crossroads, you got, you got coffee, man. You know, everybody sells coffee. No matter where you go, they got coffee. So we're Americans, so we drink coffee. And so I remember going to breakfast, and there's a group of us. We were hanging. We were helping this guy start a church uh, in Munich. And so Sherry was over there working, so I was there with her while she was doing her thing. But I was helping this guy, working with this church. And so we'd go out and hang out with all these Christians, right? And we'd go to breakfast, and we'd get coffee, and everybody drink coffee. And I'd be like, uh, yeah, fill it up again. And so I had like two or three cups of coffee. And I noticed everybody's looking at me at the table. All the Germans are looking at me like, you're going to drink two or three cups of coffee? Seriously, Kevin? You know? And then I noticed that <laughs> then we would go, they have these little gelato bars. If you've ever been to Europe, they sell gelato, which is Italian ice cream. And they give it to you in Germany, they give it to you in little balls. If you've ever been there, you get a ball, right? So if you do one ball, that's great. You do two balls, that's great. But if you do three balls of gelato, oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? And so I'd go up and I'd be like, Thrai. Bitte, which is, you know, I guess, my weak German, three, please. And I'd get three balls, and I'd be walking away with three balls of gelato, you know, because I never had gelato. I'm like, wow. I want that stracciatella, that black cherry thing. Yeah, and give me that thing over here with the nuts. Put it all on there, man. And so I'd have the, I'd have the ice cream cone, and I'd be walking with it. They'll be looking at me like, you're having three balls of ice cream? You're having three cups of coffee? Meanwhile, Sunday morning after church, watch this. You ready for this one? We'd be finished, you know, church would be getting, getting the church going, you know, I had this whole thing going on, it was a wonderful experience. And they'd be like, oh, Kevin, we're all going to the beer garden, come on. And so we'd all go to the beer garden, the English garden, they didn't call it the beer garden, they called it the English garden. So we'd go to the English garden, and they're all ordering beers, man. And they're not ordering like, I'm talking like beers, they're ordering like masses of beers, right? And they don't think anything of it. Ein Mas bitte, and they're sitting down, they get boom, a pastor, everybody's sitting down with these huge beers. Well, I'm coming from a different cultural context spiritually at the time. And so here I am, I'm looking at them going, really? You know, and I had the same gelato experience and the same coffee experience that they had. They had no problem drinking a mass of beer, but they had a problem with me drinking three cups of coffee. They had no problem with a mass of beer, but they had a problem with me having three gelato balls on my ice cream cone. You see, religion always degrades itself to personal preference. And religion becomes a something that we judge others for because it seems right to us. It is irrelevant what seems right to you. The only thing that is relevant is what is right to him. He is the God of righteousness. He determines right and wrong, up and down, left and right. Not you. He does. And so when we walk in religion, what we often find ourselves doing is finger pointing. That's exactly what Isaiah says. Take away the pointing of the finger and the striking of the fist. In other words, take, a, take away from the accusing tone and take away from attacking others because they're not like you. Or they don't worship like you. Or they don't dress like you. You know, we got uniforms in our churches oftentimes, and it's a religious experience. Everybody wears their hair the same. I got my hair cut yesterday, by the way. I went to a barber for the first time in like, I, don't, I can't even remember the last time I went to a barber. I walked into the barbershop, I was like, wow, it feels like man in here, like a man place. Because I, I get my hair cut at salons, so it's all the women, oh, yeah. But anyway, we have, we have a way of wearing our hair. We have a way of, so there's some churches you can't show up. If you don't have a suit and tie, there's a problem. You know what I'm saying? 
Women have to dress a certain way. There are churches that say, well, you can't wear makeup. There's all kinds of religious dogmas that are placed upon the life of the believer. Jesus didn't put them there. Didn't do it. Come as you are. Come in shorts and a flip-flops if you want to. You know, come in your PJs or your underwear. Just make sure they're tasteful. It's in the Bible. David worshipped in his underwear. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke, okay? And <laughs> so did Saul. Saul worshipped in his underwear too. In other words, if God was so offended at the way we dressed, he'd be like, put some clothes on, David. You know what I'm saying? Good Lord, put a, put a, put a tie on, David. Cut your hair, Samson. The, the, the point is, is that our religious paradigms always degrade themselves down to personal preferences. And God is not that way. He loves us. He's for us. He's on, he's on our highest good all the time. You've got to believe that. He's not on your agenda. He's on his. And so what God is working in your life, we sing it this morning, he will not relent until he has it all. When you give your life to Jesus, do you know what he does? He takes you at your word. He believes what you say, because love believes all things. So he believes you when you say, I give my life to you, Jesus. He believes you. And so he starts coming into your life and applying pressure into areas of your life that are not fully surrendered. Because when the pressure comes into your life, what, invert, what inevitably he wants you to do is look up. That's why it happens. He is not going to relent until you, you are surrendered in every arena of your life. You can be a Christian and still not be surrendered in lots of areas of your life. Can I get a witness? Uh-huh. Dare we go there. Our time, our talent, our money, our bodies. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Don't you tell me what to do with my body. That seems to be the cultural way of the day. Oh, I love you, Jesus, but don't you tell me what to do with my time. My time's mine. He won't relent until you have it. He has it all. He will apply the pressure into the arenas of your life that are not submitted to his lordship. Why? Because he's wanting your good. Amen. We talked about first service and we said, you know, okay, you got a car. And if you have a car, and the, the, the maker of your car might say, your car runs on gasoline. And you might go, well, the maker says it runs on gasoline, but... I think it should run on dirt. And so you start shoving dirt in your gas tank. Or you say, no, I think it should run on chicken grease, or I think it should run on water, whatever it is. You got a better idea than what the maker said it should operate on. You got a better idea. You start thinking, I'm going to feed this in fuel into the tank. Your car's not, it's not going to work right. Can we agree? Right? It may work, but it is going to work for a long time. It's going to work very long. You might be able to get it to go down a block, but eventually it's going to break down. It's going to need an overhaul. This is how we are with our own lives. Our maker says, this is the way you are designed. And we go, nah. What does he know? We are made a specific way. We are made. God doesn't want anything from you. This is, again, the perspective of love. Say it with me. Jesus does not want anything from me. He wants everything for me. You understand that? So what he is saying is not to extract something from you. It's to bring you in a position that he can do for you. That's why. When we offer, this is how heaven works. We must offer. When we offer, it creates a bridge for him to operate in that arena. If you will not offer, he cannot bridge into that arena. Rain goes up before it comes down. We have to offer. We offer our lives to Jesus. We submit under his lordship. We say, Lord, it's ours. Now it's a bridge for him to come. Whatever arena of your life must be offered to him. And then he bridges in. And if you don't give it, well, he won't relent until he has it. Because he's jealous for you, not of you. 
He loves you that much. He knows how you operate. He said, Kevin, you're not going to run on dirt. But I like dirt, Lord. Just shove some more dirt in that gas tank. Throw a little sod in there. See if that works. Yeah, I like it. I think it should work like this. Gasoline costs too much money. It costs too much to run it the way you want to run it. It's free to run it on dirt. I'm just going to shove dirt in the gas tank. Why won't you run? I don't understand how this says, oh, Christianity doesn't work. Pfft. Out the door. Could it be? Just a question. Anyway, <laughs> you have to believe that you are loved and you are loved in the highest way. You are loved in the highest way. He's always for you and he loves you in the highest way. Wow. Imagine that. Just think about that. What is it to be loved in the highest way? He's working to raise your life. He's working to build you. He's working to metamorph you. He's working to change you in the highest way. 24-7, your father's in the restoration business. So what he does all day, every day. Let the one who does it all day, every day, bring it into your life. Let him do what it is that he wants to do. He's in the restoration business, man. That's what he does. I prayed. I'm, I felt like the Lord. I go, Lord, what is it? Because Jesus said, well, I'm about my father's business. And so Christians will go, well, the church isn't a business. Well, not according to the Bible. It's our father's business. And so what exactly is our father's business? That was my question. Lord, what is your business? And he told me straight up. He said, I'm in the restoration business. I about fell out of the chair. I was like, boom. I was like, what? I'm like, what's your business, Lord? And he said, I'm in the restoration business. Man, totally revelation. I was like, wow. All day, every day. We have to understand that he loves us, that we're loved in the highest way. We have to understand majesty. Come on. Majesty, which is royal power. Royal power. Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to that power that works in us. We have to understand that Jesus is the majestic one. He rules over all. That's his realm. And we have to understand that he has given that majestic power to us. Until we understand delegated authority, we can never manifest the kingdom of God. As long as we think that God's up there and he's going to do what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, you have complete, your doctrine is wrong. Your doctrine, your lens and your paradigm is wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. God's just not up there doing whatever he wants whenever he wants to. He has released the sovereignty of his kingdom to his people. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me, Jesus said. Now, therefore, I give it to you. Go. We are the body of Christ. We are the heirs of that world. We have the inhabited power of the spirit. If anything's going to get done in this world, it must be done by the body of Christ. He still sovereignly rules, and this is where the church gets really tense, because there's a tension. There's an arena where God withholds his sovereignty, and then there's an arena where he delegates his sovereignty. But we like everything nice and tidy, so we go, oh, we just cast all the responsibility on the Lord. Well, if God wanted it to happen, it would have happened. No. 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 His promises are predicated upon an action. His kingdom is manifested through deliberate intent and deliberate alignment of his people. It does not happen any other way. Everything else is wishful thinking. He's sovereign over the end of the age. He doesn't give that to us. Jesus is coming back in his own good time. We don't get to vote. We don't get to say, I want him to come back or I don't want him to come back. He's common. He's sovereign over that. 
He's sovereign over righteousness. Hmm? It's funny that the church wants to throw sovereignty on the Lord, but we want to maintain sovereignty over righteousness, which means we want to determine what is right and wrong. But yet we want to cast every other thing upon the Lord as if it was his sovereign responsibility. It is the majesty's and the sovereign responsibility of the body of Christ to manifest the kingdom. The king maintains his sovereignty, which means we don't get to vote on what is right and wrong. He maintains sovereignty over righteousness. That's what I wanted to say. He holds rule and reign over right and wrong. Governments don't. Cultures don't. Personal opinion doesn't. Well, I believe murder is wrong. Well, you don't get the vote. God alone said you should not murder. Well, I believe stealing's good. I think we should all rob from one another. I think we should do that. You don't get to do that either. I believe we should have many wives. You know, I believe if I'm married, I could go out and do whatever I want, whenever I want, husband or wife. You know, she can do it, I can do it. You don't get the vote on that either. That's not the righteousness of God. God has determined what is right or wrong, and we have to accept that. We yield to that sovereignty. And then we accept our sovereignty and our responsibility in the spirit and we carry that forth. You have to understand majesty and royal power or you'll never manifest destiny ever. Your faith won't work. It'll just be a religion. Round the bend. Same thing every year, every time, all the time. Because you don't understand majesty. You don't understand the power of the Spirit that's been committed to you and your responsibility. And you don't understand His majesty and what He holds sovereignty over. The earth is, the Bible says the heavens belong to the Lord's, even the highest heavens. But the earth He has given to the sons of men and daughters. That's you and me. We hold court in this realm. Our will is on earth as it is in heaven. Our, our design, we are, the we are the arbiters of two worlds. We stand, man was created to stand before time and space and to enter into the spirit. We're the only beings and you are the only people on the planet who have access to the spiritual realm in Christ Jesus. Nobody else can go there. So if God's given you a place where nobody else can go, what are you waiting for? He's given you the spirit. No one else, no one else on the planet can enter the spirit but the believer. Nobody. And we are, to, we are the arbiters. We stand in time and space. We go from his world and bring it into ours. That's who we are. He's not doing it. We do it. It's the whole concept of fishing. You guys hear me tell the story. Jesus could have done, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you herd sheep. I'll teach you to grow grass. You know, not, you know, not California grass, but, you know, literal grass. I'll teach you to grow trees. He didn't say that. He said, I'll teach you to fish because fishing is pulling from one world into the other. That is the whole dynamic of fishing. Why did he say fishing? The prophetic understands that's what he's saying. The natural says, well, he's going to teach them to go out there and literally fish men like you fish. No, he's teaching the concept of taking from one world and pulling it into the other. That's holding to fishing. You pull things out of that world you didn't even know were there. You're like, oh, wow. Well, I didn't know there were catfish around here. Look at this one. It's got blue stripes on it. You ever seen a catfish with blue stripes? That's the idea. You're going to pull things from his world that you didn't even know were there. It's there all the time. And we bring it from that world into ours. You have to understand majesty. You have to understand that or nothing changes. Nothing. It's all wishful thinking. That's all it is. Wishful thinking.
You have to understand identity. You have to view yourself as heaven views you, Christian. Oh, if there's one thing that I feel like God has told me to drive it home, every time I have to talk about identity, I'm like, Lord, I've talked about this a lot. He's like, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. So identity is clearly an important on God's agenda because when I pray, he tells me, teach them identity. Who are you? Not who does grandma say you are, not who does Uncle Billy say you are, not who do you say you are, not who does your teacher say you are. doesn't matter what anybody says you are. It matters only what Jesus says you are. He and he alone has the right to, call, to name you. He and he alone has the right to call you who you are. He calls you sons and daughters. He calls you heirs of the highest. Say, I don't feel like it. Don't matter. It don't matter. Don't matter what you feel. Don't matter what you think. Truth and reality are two separate things, Christian. Huh? The role of the believer is to take their lives and press them into truth until truth becomes the reality. You understand that? What God says and what you're experiencing, there may be a disconnect between it. Because it's your job to take your reality and press your reality into truth until truth becomes your reality. I will set you on high. Take your life and press it in. Where do you want to set me on high? He'll tell you. Start pressing into it until that truth becomes your reality. What has he said? What is true? I'll make you the head and not the tail. That's a truth. Well, I don't feel like the head over here, okay? Align your life, press it into reality until it comes. Whatever he said, that's the goal. That's who we are. That's who we are. Jesus, the thing, the thing that totally wrecked me, and this made me change everything about me and about the way that I teach, is when I understood that he paid his blood so that this could happen, I said, how can I teach anything less? If he gave his life to bring that reality to the earth, what in the world are we teaching? He died to bring this. This is what he died to bring. He died to make us heirs. He died to be able to release the power of the Spirit. He died to be able to release resurrection power into the life of the believer. How can we teach anything but? What are we teaching? What are we teaching? It's what he died to give. How can we live any less? How can we neglect so great of a call? If, he, if the king of glory set everything aside, and if we clearly understood what it took for him to do what it was that he did, we just think like Jesus was skipping and throwing daisies, man. It was not easy. He sweated blood. Huh? Have you ever fought something so hard that you were mentally tormented by what you had to go through? I doubt you were mentally tormented to the place where blood came out of your brow. That's how difficult it was for him to do what it was that he was going to do. And if he gave himself to that degree in order that you could have it, then why are we holding it back? Why does the church not teach the people? And why do we not call you into it? And why do you hold yourself back? Jesus isn't holding you back. You have the full permission of heaven. <laughs> you have the full permission of heaven on your life to go and be and become all that he has called you to be. We have to understand who we are. Next slide. We've got to get it. Watch, this is powerful. I've taught this verse so many times, and I was reading it today, and I was like, what? Or yesterday. And I felt like the Lord was showing me, see that verse? Yesterday and today, it all seems like it's one day to me. <laughs> we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We teach this, but we don't understand the first verse. We never put that, step, that verse that's above it attached to that. It says, people stumble because they're disobedient to the word by which they were appointed. 
So to the non-believer, they're appointed to come to salvation, so they stumble because they don't. But to the Christian, our stumbling comes because we don't obey the word to which we were appointed. And what is that word? You ready? Here's the word to which you're appointed. You are chosen. We're disobedient to the understanding that we're chosen. We're disobedient to understand that we're a chosen generation and we're chosen in our generation. We stumble because we don't understand that we are royal priests. We stumble because we're, disappoint, we're disobedient to the word to which we were appointed. We are appointed to this. This is who we are. And so the stumbling in our lives comes because we're not aligning with who, who God says we are. Come on, man. That's good. Yeah. I make a Lutheran say amen right there. <laughs> we are royal priests. We're a holy nation. We, don't, we stumble because we don't understand that we're his special people. We don't understand it. We, 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 don't, we stumble because we're disobedient. We don't understand where to call forth his praises. We're called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We, we stumble because we're disobedient, not understanding that we were once a, not a people, but now we are somebody. We were once nobodies, and now we're somebodies. So the, what, is the, what is being reinforced here? Peter is trying to say things will change when you begin to line your life up with who God says you are. That's what he's saying. When you understand that you are chosen generation. You are cho we are chosen in this generation and we are chosen generation. You are chosen in this generation. You're chosen for something. The question is what? I don't know. We've got to ask the Lord. We've got to partner with his kingdom and find out what that is. But we have to align, myself, align yourself and begin to understand it. That you're royal. Divine royalty. A priesthood. So we stumble not understanding that we are to minister to the Lord. We may get that, but we don't understand that the Lord is to minister back to us. So while we minister to the Lord, we are to minister Him, our lives, our worship, our, our praise, our love. And we are to let Him minister back to us. That's a priest. And once He ministers back to us, we are to minister to the world. That was the role of the priest. To minister before the Lord and unto the people. Minister before the Lord and unto the people. And that is all of y'all. That's the whole church collective. It is a kingdom of priests, worshipers and spirit and truth, ministering unto the Lord, receiving back from him and taking that to the world on earth as it is in heaven. You get the picture? We stumble because we don't get it. We stumble because we don't pound it in. I don't know if I said this in Fisher's, but in Philippians, it said, let this mind be in you. If you read that in the Greek, you know what it means? Pound it in. That's what it's saying. Beat this into your head if you have to. But let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. There are certain things that we got to pound it in. You know what I mean? Get it in your thick head. Anybody know what I'm talking about? you got to get it in you, man. We're royal. We're holy. You want to know what holiness is? Get in the spirit and feel how clean you feel. There's no guilt and shame in the spirit, is there? So why are you guilty? Why do you feel shame? Get in the spirit. You're clean. You can't be more clean than you are in Jesus. You're a holy nation which means you have decreed rights. You have sovereign rights. You have expansive rights. We are a nation, a city within a city, a nation within a nation. So the question is, and then we're going to move faster. Do you, do the, do, do you see this, these lenses that we're talking about, these perceptions? Do you have these, these perceptions or do you not? Because if you do not have these perceptions, you have a distorted lens. In the distorted lens, nothing is going to be clear to you. God is progressively changing the lenses and the paradigms and the way that his people thinks, think. 
Do, 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 your, do your lenses enhance or distort the way you are living? Or are you experiencing your calling in faith? Is your lenses enabling you to experience your faith? Are they holding you in a restrictive place? That's the question. Those are three very important elements that we need. Here's a couple of guys that are going to have lens changes. I'll paraphrase. I'll, I'll just give you the story. You can write it down. Acts chapter 10. Peter's having an experience. Pentecost has happened. Peter's trying to figure out everything that went on. So he ends up in the house of a tanner. Now, Peter had a lot of prejudices towards people who were non-Jews. Right? If you're not a Jew, Peter was raised in a culture, in a context that didn't like Gentiles, goyims. They didn't go to a goyim's house. They didn't associate with goyims. That's a Gentile. They had nothing to do with them. Yet, as I said, religion always finds itself in personal preferences. He's at the house of a tanner, which is a direct violation of the law itself because he wasn't to be around dead people or dead things. So here's Peter having a prejudice towards other nationalities. But, so he, he keeps that part of the law, but he has no problem going to the house of dead animals, which the law forbid. You understand how religion finds itself in personal preferences? He had no problem going to the tanner, but he had, no, man, he had a problem with those Gentiles. Right? Come on. Religion always degrades itself into personal preferences. Always. Always. So Jesus shows up. This is cool, too. He sees a sheet coming down from heaven. You know, I looked up that word sheet, and it means woven sail. That's what it means. It's not just a sheet, like we think it's a bed sheet. The word that's used is a, wove, a woven sail. So what is the prophetic indicator that God is trying to do? He's trying to show Peter a sail, the wind of the Spirit, right? He's trying to show Peter, this is a move of the Spirit, Peter. Can you prophetically pick it up? Because I'm showing you a woven sail. And we think, oh, it was just a sheet, bed sheet that came down. I wonder if it was a Calvin Klein sheet. I wonder if he got that at Bed Bath & Beyond. Where'd the Lord get that sheet from? He was showing him a sail indicative of, wind, of the movement of wind. And he was showing Peter that what I am doing here is of the Spirit. And he was breaking Peter out of the paradigms that he was thinking from. Peter's religion and Peter's paradigms were so restrictive that he couldn't recognize what God was doing. And God needed to confront Peter's paradigms in order to get Peter to transform. Oh, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Next slide. There was dietary separations in the Old Testament. Those dietary separations, it's important to understand, didn't happen until the law of Moses. When Noah and his sons came out of the ark, there was no dietary restrictions. Jesus told them, you can eat everything. And then when it came to the law, because the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. And so the law came to reveal sin. And so inside of the law were all of these separations. Everything was separated because God was showing the concept, trying to get it into our heads or the people's heads, that there's clean and there's unclean. There's right, there's wrong. He's, so he's, he's showing them, don't eat this, eat that. Don't do this, do that. Don't wear this, wear that. People go, oh, I follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. That's what they say. And I always ask them, do you got a beard that looks like Father Time? Because if you're going to follow the law, you need to follow it to the fullness. The law does not produce righteousness. The law points to sin. Right? That's what the point of the law. The Bible says the law is to show you that you're a sinner. That's the whole point. So they weren't to cut their hair. They weren't to wear blended fabrics. So if you got a poly cotton shirt on and you're thinking you're righteous because you keep the dietary laws and you're wearing poly cotton, the Bible says if you're guilty of the part, you're guilty of the whole. 
You either keep it all or you keep none of it. That's what the scripture calls the law. So it said, by the law of law, none is made righteous by the law because nobody can keep the law. And so there's dietary restrictions. Peter being in the house of the tanner, but has a problem with Gentiles. He's racist. He's prejudiced. He isn't going to come out and say it, but culturally that's what they were. Racist and prejudiced against anyone that wasn't like them. Hmm? Yeah. Orthodox Jews. So Peter goes, Peter's on the roof. He sees this thing. The Lord tells him. Then Peter's wondering about what the heck he just saw. And then the Lord shows up and says, now Peter, he's so Peter has a revelation and he gets a prophetic word. So here's our chance for how, how, how paradigms shift. Revelation, prophetic word. There's two elements. Peter has a revelation. God shows him something. And then he gives him a prophetic word. And he says, Peter, there are men downstairs. Three men downstairs. They're looking for you. And I'm going to give you literally what the Bible says. The Bible says, shut up and go with them. That's what it says in the Greek. Shut your mouth, speak nothing, and go with them. Why? Because when Peter came downstairs, who was looking for him? Gentiles. Gentiles. Goyims. And so Peter probably would have went to the door and go, I'm not going with you, you filthy, dirty Gentiles. And so the Lord said, I want you to shut up, and I want you to go where they take you. This is sometimes the move of the Spirit in our own lives. We need to shut up and do what he's telling us to do. We need to shut up and go where the Spirit is leading us to go. Peter clearly had a lot to say. And so Peter's having a hard time with this. If you can understand the struggle, this is completely out of the box for him. This isn't his worship style. This isn't his worship experience. He didn't experience this in anything that he's growing up with. And here's these three guys, these three dirty Gentiles who want him to go with him to Joppa. And so he gets, or he was in Joppa. So he leaves and goes with them. And they leave, and Peter's probably thinking the whole time, you, you guys walk ahead, I'll walk behind. You know, because as a Jew, he didn't want to be seen with him. Peter clearly had this problem. We see it again in the New Testament where Paul had to confront him and tell him, Peter, stop dissociating yourself from the Gentiles. It says when the, law, when, the, when the Pharisees came, Peter said, oh, I don't know any of these dirty Gentiles. I'm over here with the righteous Pharisees, the religious ones. And Paul said, I withstood him to his face. And I said, Peter, you're out of line. You're out of line. You're dissociating yourself from the people God has called you to serve so that you can look all pretty and proper with the religiously correct. Not the heart of God at all. So Peter had this problem, right? His tradition kept him just from seeing what God was doing. These men come, and not only does he go with Gentiles, he goes to a Gentile's house. He had never been in a Gentile's house in his life. Jews didn't go into Gentiles' houses ever. Ever. They would shake the dust off their feet. They would walk around Samaria. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even go the shortest distance. They would walk around. Wherever the Gentiles went, they would avoid them. I had a guy on Miami Beach, Orthodox Jew. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles, and they have the, the lulav. They, have the, 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 they, they hold a, a bunch of different types of species of uh, plant. They bind them together, and they hold a lemon. It's symbolic of something. So I went up to this uh, rabbi standing on the, uh, Lincoln Road, and I said, hey, I go, can you tell me about that? I really like, you know, because I'm just trying to engage. And I go, can you tell me about that? Can you let me know what, the, what does that mean? He goes, are you Jewish? I said, no. He turned his back on me. Wow. Yeah. 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 To this day, that prejudice is there. You don't see it across the board, but culturally, it's there. It's there. And so this was what was ingrained in him. His culture had prevented him to seeing what the Spirit was doing. We have to be aware that the culture of heaven, people, may not be like your culture. 
Okay? The culture of the Spirit may not be like your upbringing. May not be the way that God wants to do it. Well, that's not the way we did it 50 years ago. Well, it probably isn't. The culture of the Spirit is completely different than what we, we think. So he goes to this Gentile's house. He goes in. And he says, the first thing he does, when the Lord shows him the sail, the Lord says, look, Peter, I'm going to show you a move of the Spirit. Rise, kill, and eat. Oh, no, Lord. He tells the Lord his lens. You don't understand the way I see things, God. I don't see things like that. I would never do that. Then he goes to Cornelius' house. They bring him to Cornelius' house, and the first thing he does to Cornelius is he tells him what time it is. That's why probably the Lord had to tell him, shut up and go, because we realize Peter has a lot to say. And he says, do you know how unlawful it is for me to even be here? Do you have any idea? I'm an observant Jew, and I'm standing in your house. That's the first thing. You have to Welcome to my home. Do you know how unlawful it is for me to be here? <laughs> Let's put it in real time. That's what's going on, right? We gloss it over and act like it's some like kid's story. Peter's really having a hard time here. He's really struggling. God is pulling him out of something and into something. He says, I can't come, but now it's God has shown me. The Lord has shown me. Therefore, I came without objection. That's not entirely true. He came without objection because the Lord told him to shut up. That's the only reason he came without objection. I guarantee you if the Lord hadn't told him to shut up, Peter would have objected the whole way through. Look, third, verse 34. Once Peter speaks to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. And what does Peter say? Watch, lens shift right here. I now see that God is no, shows no partiality or favoritism. For the first time in my life, I understand my religious paradigms have been wrong. Come on. So how our lenses change through a revelation? Peter gets a revelation. Peter gets a prophetic word. People that are downstairs. Go with them. And the third thing is Peter had to move into the prophetic word that was spoken. Revelation and prophetic word are not enough. You must move into it. When the prophetic word is given to you, you've got to do something with it. It doesn't happen by default. Peter had to move. And as he moved, change happened. He didn't understand the revelation, number one. He didn't understand why there's a bunch of dirty Gentiles asking him to go. And he didn't understand why he had to go into a Gentile's house until he actually started moving. Then the revelation and the prophetic word became reality to him. And he said, now I get it. Because I didn't sit back and do anything and scratch my head and go, well, you know, clearly the law says, and clearly, Lord, you couldn't possibly be saying that to me. He moved, and it changed. Here's another one. I'll give you this one quick. Next slide. You get that? Believe God for revelation. Let him show you insights. Let him give you keys to understand whatever it is your arena you're dealing with or going through or want. Let him show you keys, people, secret things that people in your field don't know. Let him give you wisdom into arenas where other people around you don't know. Huh? He will give it to you. The keys of the kingdom are yours. Whatever it is, let him show you a revelation. Let him give you a word, a prophetic, a, an instruction, a declaration. Let him give you something and step into it. Here's Saul. Here's a guy named Saul, to form, now becomes Paul. Paul is killing Christians. Paul has spent his entire life studying the doctrines of God. Paul believes that everything he is doing is a service to the Lord. He believes he is so right, but in reality, he is so wrong. 
So it is possible for people to believe, Christians and churches and our doctrines, to believe we are so right when we couldn't be more wrong. Oh. The church is locked in doctrines and paradigms. We can't recognize a move of the Spirit when it's right in our face. Just like Paul. I'll give you the four saddest words in the Scripture here in a minute. So Paul's traveling with a group of people. He's killing Christians. He has an encounter with Jesus. Say it with me. An encounter? Come on. An encounter changes everything. Jesus encounters him. No donkey in the story, by the way. That's how much we really understand the story. Paul got knocked off his donkey. There's no donkey. And it doesn't say Jesus knocked him off. It says he, Paul fell to the ground. And then we go into this one. Well, here's, our, here's my, my uh, Jesus doesn't heal guys go, well, Jesus doesn't heal. And God afflicts people with illnesses. And I'm like, yeah, give me an example. And they'll go, well, Paul was struck with blindness. I'm like, read the text. In the text, the Bible says what Paul, happened to Paul is a Greek word, blaphon, which means he lost perception. There is one Greek word for blindness. It's not typhoon. That was a spell check. It's teflon, like teflon, but teflon. Teflon is the only Greek word that means blind. And so when it says Paul could not see, the, uses the Greek word, a loss of perception. He was disoriented. He couldn't know where he was going. He was completely disoriented. But Jesus never struck him with, uh, with Tiflon. He did not get blinded. But we, uh, we'll teach that. It's completely contrary to his nature. If we believed half the stuff we talk about God, he would be arrested for child abuse, man. He afflicts his children with disease. Says who? Says who? Not in your Bible. Not in your Bible. It's not there. I know all the verses on it. I've, trust me, I've studied it out. I wouldn't even be opening my mouth if I didn't know what I was talking about. Problem with Peter, here's the difference here, right? So Paul's perception is lost. He encounters Jesus on the road. And you know what he said? Here's a man who has spent his entire life trying to understand and serve the Lord. He has a divine encounter and experience, and the one that he's been seeking his whole life is standing right in front of him, and he can't recognize him. Four saddest words in the Bible. Who are you, Lord? More tragic words could not be spoken. Who are you? He has given everything, believing everything, trusting in everything, and he couldn't be more wrong. That's why he spent three days not eating. Why do you think he spent three days not eating? It wasn't because the encounter was so powerful. He was lamenting everything that he had done. He was in pain, in agony, over how wrong he had been and how he had done the things that he had done to such extremes and he was wrong. So I tell Christians, don't open your mouth unless you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I practice it. Trust me. John chapter 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Are you actually teaching this stuff to my people? That's what he's asking. You're teaching this to my people and you don't even understand the first thing about what it is you're talking about? Just a thought. Let's put that one out there on the internet. <laughs> I take it to heart. I won't comment to my best of my ability. I'm not perfect. But I do my best to not comment unless I've studied the issue. I do my best to not stand in a position unless I fully understand it or I'm, I'm, I'm to, the, to, the, to the great degree know what it is I'm talking about. I don't say Jesus heals because I believe a doctrine of a denomination. I don't say Jesus heals because I read it in a book somewhere. 
I say Jesus heals because he reveals it in his scripture and he manifests it with truth. Huh? I don't say Jesus is a prophetic God because I've read it from a book or some doctrine taught me or this or anything like that because I've seen it in reality. I have experienced it. Therefore, it cannot be denied. A lot of pastors need to stop teaching half the crap that they teach because they don't understand what it is that they speak. All should not seek to be teachers, for such will face a stricter judgment. Well, all will be go before the Bema Seat and be rewarded. I go before the Bema Seat, and God goes, did you teach what I told you to teach? Did you actually endure what I told you to endure? Did you find and follow my heart, or did you follow the denomination, or did you follow the rule of the day? Or did you, what did you do, Kevin? That's what I'll answer for. I'm fully aware of it. Fully aware of it. I know what I teach you has to be right to the best of my ability. I'm not saying I can't be wrong. I reserve the right to disagree with myself at any time. <laughs> but it's important. Jesus has, it's to his heart that his people be taught well. I remember having ice, feeling like ice hit me when he said that in, in, to Nicodemus. Do you teach my people and yet you don't know this? Are you opening your mouth and, and you're talking about spiritual things and you don't have a concept of it? but yet you think you're the authority to comment on it? I think not. Hmm? Another one's Proverbs. A fool answers a matter before it's heard. When I was young, I had a lot of opinions. So if you're young in here, under the age of 30, I, su I would suggest to you, you're feeling very opinionated because I was very opinionated. And I had an opinion about a lot of stuff. And, the, and I would answer things before I'd even heard it. And the Lord gave me a verse one time, and he said, a fool answers the matter before it's heard. I said, you're a fool, Kevin. You're answering things, and you, have, you don't even understand it, but yet you have an opinion on it. So, <laughs> I said, ouch, ouch, ouch. And I did my best to understand it before I spoke an opinion. That's wise counsel. Do your best to understand this, all of the issues before you have an opinion on it. I have people come to me, like I've had a big debate several over the years because we believe in healing. I believe in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will never deny him. Ever. Love me or hate me, it's on. Why? Because I believe. I know what he has taught me. And I know what I've done. I, I, I'll give you a story. I was raised charismatic. I was raised around stuff. Charismatic spiritual stuff went all kind of crazy and off the rails. And everything got whoop-de-doo, loop-de-doo. Everything got completely wacky. And so I left that, didn't want anything to do with it because it had become about money and just all kinds of just nonsense. While that, those are elements of it, but it just became all about certain things. And I did not, would not speak in tongues. I would not pray for the sick. I would not give prophetic word for years because my religious paradigm viewed the power of the spirit only in those terms. God showed me that I, what I was viewing, I saw this movement of the Spirit happening only like that. And my paradigm kept me locked in a place until the Lord had to open my eyes and show me something entirely different. And show me that you can be naturally supernatural. And I went, what? You don't have to get crazy. You don't have to strike a pose. I got a prophetic word for you. You know, oh, thus says the Lord, brother. Oh, whatever, however it is we do it. You know what I'm saying? We think that's the only way we're prophesying. You know, or we think it's only with healing if we're shoving somebody down to the floor. 
You know, I would rather the person stand upright and get healed than I would them fall to the floor and nothing happen. I don't care if you fall to the floor. I'd rather have you stand upright and let the healing of God come into you. But God had to change my paradigm because my paradigm was denying the very thing that he had put in me. And so I won't deny him anymore because you know why? He shifted my paradigm and I'm never the same. Never the same. I've had a lot of people. The one person had a huge debate with me over God's healing. And at the end of the day, they don't know what they're talking about. They have absolutely no clue what they're talking about. They're just regurgitating something that somebody else told them. If your learning does not bring you into encounter, then what you are learning needs to be changed. If, you are, if your learning does not bring you into experience, then your learning needs to be changed. Paul was an academic theologian. Peter was an experiential theologian. Peter was more quick to change. It took Paul years. He had to go away for three years and relearn what he had learned. That's why Paul left the grid. Paul disappeared for three years, if you don't know. He has this encounter, meets with a couple people, and he's totally freaked out. He leaves, goes into the, into the desert, into Damascus, and lives out there for three years and relearns what it is that he had learned wrong. Peter was more relational because he had been with Jesus. He had watched Jesus reorient the law from his heart. He had watched Jesus heal people on the Sabbath. He had watched Jesus eat the grains on, on the Sabbath. He had watched Jesus bring the heart of the law into alignment. He was there when Jesus told, you have heard him say, but I say. And so Peter was a relational theologian. His understanding was always to be brought into alignment with the heart of God. Is this the heart of God? Is this what the Lord would want? And so Peter was able to shift quicker. Paul, it took him a little while longer, but he did. And when Paul came on the scene, he was like a... He was a meteor, man. So what the deal is, is what we are learning doesn't bring us into experience encounter. We need to shift. If what we are learning doesn't bring us into encounter, we need to see it differently. Last slide. I love you guys. You feeling this? I don't know. This is coming on, man. I think second service sometimes, because first service, I got to hold back a couple of things because I don't have a lot of time. And then it's just like, here it comes, the second service. So this, you can write this down, Ephesians chapter 3. The whole context of that verse is experience, that you would know the love of God. Dries your understanding would be open. Again, it's not a poem. It's a call into experience. So what I would say to you during this time, if you're going to fast with us, and I encourage you to, Daniel fast, 21 days. What do I eat? Look it up. Daniel fast. No meats, no, gre- no, meats, no sweets, and no fermented grains. What's that? Look it up. You'll see. Daniel fast, 21 days. It'll come up. During the fast, what I want you to do and what you should do during this time is learn. Read your word. But don't just read your Bible or don't just read things. Let the, let, let the word encounter you. See it for what it's saying. Let the heart of God come into you. Learn and grow. Ask God for new revelation and new prophetic word. Ask him to speak over you. He'll speak, man. He'll speak. He will. He'll tell you something nice about yourself that you don't even know. He'll tell you something that almost is too embarrassing for you to receive. He'll speak over you. He'll reveal things to you. Revelation is revealed. It's actually where we get reveal is re- from revelation. And relation, that, that part, it's a relationship to the revealed. That's what it means. That's what revelation means. You see something and you begin to relate to it. You start relating to, the re- to what's revealed. Ask God for something revealed and begin to relate to it. Begin to step into it. Move into what Jesus is revealing. Confront everything that is keeping you from it. Lord, some of you in this room, you have enough prophetic word to carry you for the next five years. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is, is you're not doing anything with it. You're not doing anything with it. 
So God's given a prophetic word. He's given you a direction. He's given you a calling. He's given whatever it is he's put over you. He's called for him from you. And you have to begin to ask yourself, what does it take for me to become that? What are the things that are inhibiting me from becoming that or from moving into that? And it may be external things, but most likely it's going to be some internal things. There's going to be some attitudes that got to be addressed. There's got to be some, some things probably within your own heart, some beliefs, some paradigms got to shift. They got to shift. It's a good thing. It's a year of transformation. You believe that? Partner with the Lord. Partner with the Lord. The mandate on my life is to teach the people of God to call upon Him. That's what He put on me. There's other things, but that's one of them. When I asked the Lord when He called me into the ministry, I asked Him a bunch of things. I said, I can't be like that. I can't be like that. I can't do that. I'm not this person. I'm not going to do that. And He said, Great, Kevin. Now you can be who you are. So then, you know what I had to do? I had to discover who I am. Well, if I'm not like any of this, then actually, who am I? Right? <laughs> and then I asked him, started asking him, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And he said, I want you to teach my people to call on me. I want you to teach my people to call on me. So it's constant relationship, constant partnership. Call upon the Lord, and he will answer you. Show you great and mighty things that he knows not of. Jeremiah 2, look, my people do not call on me days without number. That is not a condemnation that is the heart of a broken father who wants his children to call on him, who wants his children to ask him. That's what he wants. Do you believe it? Yes? yes? All right. Let me bless you. We've got EMT starting, which I'm already late. Sorry, Tom. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, let me bless you. Man. Father, we just do our best to make room for you, Lord. You have so much to say. So much to say. There's so much you want to release, Lord. And some of it's just releasing the word into the atmosphere, that the atmosphere would change. And some of it's releasing it into our hearts and the arenas of our lives, that we would be challenged, God, that we would be confronted and transformed. So, Lord, we submit it all unto you. Bless you, God. There is no one like you. Honor you, Lord. There is no one like you. And I bless these people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live in his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have an awesome week. Prayers on Friday.